Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I am excited to have in the studio today with me a filmmaker who is currently tearing up the festival circuit. He is the writer and director behind such films as Child Eater, The Short Banishing, and the recent award-winning Rift. Welcome today, Erlinger Torridson. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have you. Uh, so let's start things off the way I always do. I am going to ask you the same question I ask all of my first guests, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that any way you want. Um, yeah, I don't... So why horror? Like, I've, I feel like I... I think about it quite often, like what what brought me to horror, like why why have you know it's I've been a fan since I was a kid, but I never really outgrew it, um, and I don't really know. I think it was like you know the the attraction to like something that was forbidden, something you know I wasn't really supposed to be watching, uh, and I have like all these memories from when I was very young, and you know I was like sneaking into my you know into the living room, and you know my parents were watching something, and. Uh, I knew I wasn't supposed to watch it, but I would like kind of, you know, crouch behind the, the sofa and, you know, uh, still watch it. And and I think also like, you know, um, I think with a lot of people like, you know, our age who grew up with the uh, the video stores, um, I remember just being in the, the video stores in Iceland, you know, browsing the, uh, the horror section. I would like always be attracted to the horror section. Um, and, you know, I wasn't allowed to rent those movies, but um, I would like make up in my mind, you know, what they were about. Uh, and then, you know, I have these journals back home, you know, from school where I would be like, you know, in our, you know, write a story sessions in school. Like I would write my own versions of like Carrie and The Omen and uh, and yeah, stuff like that. So it's always kind of been a thing that I've been attracted to. Now, in your journal versions of the films, when you finally got to see those movies, was there a letdown because you had built them up in your mind? Yeah, or? I remember specifically like seeing Carrie for the first time and I, you know, because like they really like market the, you know, the bloody Carrie, like in all the, you know, all the covers and the posters. Right. Uh, and I remember seeing Carrie for the first time and I'd also like my mom, she was kind of influential. Like she wouldn't let me watch the movies, but she would tell me the plots. Oh. So, uh, you know, I remember seeing Carrie for the first time and being super disappointed that it wasn't like that kind of full on bloody horror movie that I had imagined it to be uh, and today it's like one of my favorite movies but um, but yeah I had to kind of you know I had to unmake the movies kind of that I had created in my head before I started appreciating them I definitely get that I remember when I was young there was a, a kid that I went to school with who was allowed to see the movies or wasn't afraid to be honest I was like a scaredy cat until I wasn't and he would describe the plots of you know the Friday the 13th sequels and in yeah. my brain there were these just like massively epic creature features and they don't disappoint I love those movies but there is I think something to be said about the power of suggestion and imagination yeah. uh, I think Carrie is an interesting choice too that you would fixate on because in a way it's a scene in search of a film yeah uh, but is also a true art piece yeah absolutely and uh, and I feel like you know um, and I think a lot of I think I feel like a lot of the movies that you know when I the movies that I watched as a teenager and kind of like didn't quite get like Carrie and I remember like seeing um, you know Suspiria and uh, The Shine you know like all these movies that you know I didn't quite get on the first viewing those have kind of become the movies that I've you know now am obsessed with and now are kind of you know have really had an influence on like the way I want to make movies and the way uh, like just the stuff that I, I, I appreciate in movies but I think they they had something that connected with me as a as a young person uh, but they also kind of weren't what 
I expected them to be. And so they kind of linger on for a while. Right. And you mentioned in the context of your answer uh, that you are from Iceland. Yes. And this is something I wanted to discuss with you because all of the movies you've mentioned are American-made films. Yeah. Uh, Growing up in Iceland, was American media kind of an overwhelming presence? And uh, is there also an indie horror scene in Iceland as well? Well, yeah. So first answer, like, yeah, American pop culture in general is very pervasive in Iceland. Um, We do get like a little bit, you know, we're, it's a mix of American stuff and and European stuff, but I still feel, especially when it comes to movies, um, the American um, scene has kind of taken over. You know, we watch much more um, American movies in the theaters than than we watch European movies, I think. it also had something to do with the fact that, like Iceland had, there was like an army base in Iceland uh, for for decades, uh, an American army base. So I think we were always, you know, Iceland is fairly kind of fairly recently uh, come out of the, you know, like the the dark ages, you know, um, and into the modern age, and it happened really fast for us. Right. Uh, so I think we really looked up to, you know, the Americans and kind of, you know, what we perceived as being you know, um, kind of fancy culture and, you know, like, <laughs> which like today it's like, you know, you look at, yeah, I don't know if we think the same way now, but, um, um, understandably so. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so we were, you know, uh, always super into, into American stuff, uh, American movies and, um, but in like terms of Icelandic filmmaking, um, it's actually interesting how little we see of kind of that influence come into our, our, our filmmaking because we don't have, I mean, we barely have an indie scene at all and we literally have no horror scene, um, which is why I'm like, you know, I, you know, I have this one man mission of, of changing that for Iceland to like create a, a little bit of, um, yeah, like a, a horror film culture i feel like iceland is ripe for you know horror movies just like the landscape and everything we're we're totally ready for it well it sounds to me like because it's just not done there that it kind of seems like a a far-reaching dream to become a filmmaker in iceland and so when you are growing up watching these movies and obsessing about these movies from making up your your own versions to finally seeing them at what point did you personally decide that watching them wasn't enough and that you wanted to create um i think it was around the time when i was like probably like 14 15 um i'd been making like my own you know vhs short movies just you know edited in camera you know like run away and cut and then like oh my god they disappeared (laughs) uh stuff like that um but uh when i was 14 i met uh i made a a really good friend I, i grew up in a very small town in iceland kind of in the countryside um and uh there was this uh, guy called Baldwin. He moved to town, and uh, we became really good friends, and we kind of bonded over our shared love of uh, movies, and we made together our first ambitious short film, uh, which was called Rip Off, uh, which was uh, our, our version of Face Off. We had, like, that, like, slash in the in the middle. Um we, we just took the title from Face Off. It was actually more of like our version of Scream. We were like making fun of um, slasher movies set in Iceland. And I played um, the deformed axe-wielding killer. Uh, so I was directing and starring. Well, I wasn't starring. I was like, you know, just the, the killer, the villain character. Um, but we like, we shot that movie over the course of a week. Like we spent money to rent the camera. We cast our friends and it was, you know, a pretty ambitious project. Uh, and then we screened it in our school. And this is a school of, you know, maybe like 
500, 600 kids, um, and 200 people showed up, and we like filled the filled our like theater oh, and the great. school, and they all paid. So we actually made money from the <laughs> screening, um, and it was just like you know th- 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 that feeling of like screening that movie, and like everybody was so into it, and people were like screaming and laughing, and I think once we did that, I knew like this is totally what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like I can't I can't go back from this. Uh, when was the last time you watched Ripoff? Oh my god, it's been a while. I haven't seen it. Um, well, actually, I think maybe a year ago, and it was like a party. I think it was a rap party for Rift, and uh, somebody suggested like, "Oh, we should put on Ripoff," uh, but I was quite drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but quite a journey from that to Rift, I assume. Yeah, um, yeah. It's. I mean, I like to say like I feel like I'm still doing the same movie, just you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit better every time. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it's I've, yeah. I, you could say I've come a long way since then. Now, leaping a little bit ahead, uh, Rift does focus on LGBTQ themes. Yeah, and you said earlier that you feel like until recently Iceland sort of existed in the dark age that it just came out of. Yeah, uh, and a lot of the guests that we've had on the show talked about their ex- experience as queer youth growing up here in the states. Uh, but I'm wondering, what is the experience growing up gay in Iceland, and uh, were there challenges to that? Um. The, the interesting thing about um, like um, the LGBT experience in Iceland is that um, it changed really rapidly, really quickly. Um, so like in the 70s, 80s and probably into the 90s, it was, um, you know, it was problematic. It was, you know, um, it wasn't a very open community to LGBT people. Um, but in the 90s, it, it started changing. Uh, and we, um, in 1996, we actually became the first country in the world to um, legalize gay marriage. Um, so it's been, you know, and ever since that happened, the change has been really, really quick. And today, I think we consider ourselves one of the most kind of open nations in the world uh, when it comes to um, LGBT um, rights and, and and just living. Um, and... Um, I didn't feel like I didn't really um, feel any real kind of bad pressure or anything when I was growing up. Um, I was, I think I was like 12 when I like realized that like, oh, I'm not like the, the other boys in, in my in my class. Um, and I, you know, it was like I had my, you know, coming out journey. I didn't come out until I was like 17. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't really hard. Um, I mean, it was hard just to like say the words, but um, but my family was super accept- accepting. My friends were all very accepting, um, and you know, my family is the kind of family like today. Like they walk with me in the gay pride parade. Um, you know, my grandmothers and you know everybody. So you know, it's a it's a very open. Uh, at least my family is very open. And I think for most people, they would they would say the same. And you recently traveled back to Iceland for Pride. Yes, yeah. And you are involved in some of the organization of that. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so before before I kind of moved to um moved to America to pursue my filmmaking dreams, I I, I would work with uh, the Gay Pride organization um and um I worked quite extensively like since I was 20 years old. Uh, I worked a lot with um just like the LGBT community in Iceland. I would go with uh, another friend of mine. We would um be the uh, we had like a youth group and we were like the, even though we were just twenty and like didn't know anything we like were the leaders of that youth group and we would go to um, schools to um, talk to kids uh, about like the experience of being gay and 
it's just our personal experiences um and even you know still today you know kids that saw us talking like are still coming up to us and being like oh you really changed a lot for me you know just like seeing you know normal people i'm putting normal in like uh quotation marks because i don't know <laughs> if i'm really normal um but yeah so i, I would do that and then um because the the, the um, active community like the activist community is, is quite small um so from there i would start working with the um the the gay pride um or we just call it the pride organization um and i would be kind of in charge of like booking talent and like overseeing the stage management and all of that stuff. So I still have a lot of friends who work actively today and during the festival. So uh, I feel very close to it and, and I like to go back as much as I can. And how many years now have you been involved? Well, I've been, so it's, so if, well, I don't want to age myself, but yeah, if, if I started when I was like 21, 22, it's been like, yeah, 11, 12 years. It's great. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm active today. Like, once I moved back, like, once I moved from Iceland to New York, my, um, like, my fingers aren't quite as much in it. You know, I do what I can when I can. Right. But, um, but yeah, I'm, you know, my heart is always there. And you maintain an active presence. And yes. I think that's yeah. what's important. Uh, now, you discuss going from Iceland to the States. And is... Did you move here for for film school? Is that yes? Um, I always wanted like my my favorite types of movies were you know or are and still are kind of by and large um, American. That's kind of what I grew up with, uh, and I knew that I really wanted to pursue like uh, a filmmaking career in America. Um, we have a film school in Iceland, but by the t- like at the time when I was like ready to to do something like that, um, it wasn't quite up to the standards where it is today. So um, I was looking at schools in um, the US and my friend that I told you about, Baldwin, who I made rip off with, he uh, he had been uh, a student, he had gone to Columbia University a couple of years earlier. Um, so I knew about Columbia and I knew that it was a more kind of writing centered program. And I, I felt like that was something that I really needed to hone in my own um kind of my own wheelhouse of, of things to do. So um, I applied there, I got in, um, and that was amazing. So uh, I moved there, stayed there for eight years. Uh, and now when, now that Rift is like doing its tour, like I'm kind of homeless. I go from <laughs> like hotel to hotel, but uh, but yeah, but it's been, it's been quite a journey since I moved to New York. You do tra- travel more than anyone I know. I think oh, yeah. every time I talk to you, you are in not just a different city, but a different country. Yeah. So, uh, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But first, from rip off to film school to, yeah. to your first, let's say, official produced short. Yes. What was that journey like? Well, it was very, you know, you, uh, it, it's interesting because I came to Colombia and I had, you know, I had made my shorts back home in Iceland. You know, I made a few after I did rip off, mm-hmm. uh, but they were all like very kind of homegrown. You know, it's just me. Like I was usually operating the camera. It was my um, friends who were acting or like people that, you know, friends of friends. Uh, I would edit them. So I was like, you know, I was kind of like a one man. Uh, machine making these movies and then I go to New York and um, meet all these people who go to school with me and they come from like super different backgrounds and a lot of them had been um, doing a lot more professional work before so I kind of felt like my first year or two at Columbia you know I had that kind of imposter syndrome going on where I was like I don't know if I'm like as good as any of these people or like I don't I felt like my background was somehow 
lesser than what these people came from. Um, and also, like, because of that, I felt that actually, like, made me more kind of open to um, making something that was more like me, you know. My, so my short, my first short film that I did um, at Columbia, like, my first big short film um, was a horror short because everybody else was doing their kind of, you know, serious, serious drama stuff. And I was like, you know, you know, I'm just going to do, you know, what I love. I'm just going to do a horror thing. And I met um, a producer at Columbia who's also in school there. Uh, and she shared my love for horror. And um, so that kind of organically kind of um, evolved into what is now the, the whole Child Eater thing. So Child Eater was kind of the first big short film that I made there. And then after that, you made The Banishing. And then I made The Banishing, yeah. And from there, you developed Child Eater into a feature. Into a feature, yeah. With the same, basically all the same people who did the short with me. Now, uh, let's talk about that development. Did you always plan from the beginning of making the short to turn it into a feature, or was that sort of a happy accident? It was kind of a happy accident. Um, we So the short was totally written just to be a short. Uh, and we, I mean, we would, like, talk about it on Saturday. We would just joke, you know, what if this was a feature? You know, this should be a feature. Um, but it wasn't until, like, we started screening, you know, we started sending the short out to festivals, and we got, um, got into quite a few. You know, we got into South by Southwest, which was a really big deal for us. Absolutely. Um, um, and um, I would go to some of these festivals and do like Q&As and we would always get the question. So like, when is the feature version going to come out? Um, and once we had gotten that question, you know, enough, I started talking to my producer, Perry. Um, I was like, you know, what if we actually did, you know, uh, a feature version? What would it be like? Um, and then I just started writing and we went through like a number of drafts uh, until we were like, felt satisfied that um, we were like happy with the draft and also like that we could do it for a limited budget, you know, because it was kind of, you know, self-funded. It was self or not self-funded, but like it was, you know, we didn't have like a production company behind us. Right. So we had to like, you know, in terms of our investors and stuff, it was all our own kind of connections and, and, and getting that all kind of uh, in place. Um, but yeah, no, it was, um, but it, I think like sometimes that's the best way to kind of do it. Like when you, you know, when, when it's not necessarily your, your idea, it kind of comes from a different place and that inspires you to, you know, to go forward and like make it happen. Right. And so you take Child Eater, the feature out on the road. Yeah. And uh, prior to that, you know, Banishing and the Child Eater short, those three were all made here in America. All made in America. Yeah. So once Child Eater is kind of like winding down its festival run, you start planning to make Rift and you choose to go back to Iceland to make it. Could you yeah. tell me a bit about that choice? So it was actually kind of, it wasn't quite in that order. So what happened was we um, we filmed Child Leader, the feature in 2014. Okay. Um, and then we had like a very long post-production process, mostly because we had made um, a deal with a post-production company, which was amazing, a great deal for us. Um, but it kind of took certain things out of our hands. So we had our, our sound being done by this one place and we had our color being done by this other, you know, so, uh, and because we were like a no budget film, we were like at the, the bottom of the to-do pile. Right. So everything took really, really um, long basically to, to happen. Uh, and I was getting so frustrated with like the film just, you know, we had a picture lock film, but it wasn't finished and we were, you know, trying to get it finished and we were also trying to get it, you know, premiered somewhere at a festival and like everything was taking so long. So I was like, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to go home while this is all happening and make something else. I, like, I, I don't want to just wait 
until this comes out before I can do something else. Right. Um, so um, I ended up going back to Iceland to um, to make Rift, and there was like other things that kind of played into as well. You know, I had I, I, I had a breakup uh, in a relationship, uh, and I also had like another job fall through. So I was like feeling really down and like sorry for myself. Uh, and you know, moving back to Iceland felt kind of like giving up in a way or like you know it felt like a defeatist thing uh, to do um, so I had like this choice of like am I gonna sit in my room and like just be depressed and feel sorry for myself or am I actually just gonna make something and make it happen right. um, and um, yeah that kind of lit my fire and uh, and yeah and Rift came together really really quickly like I started writing it October 2015 uh, we shot it March 2016 and uh, premiered it um, yeah, more or less a year after that. And so you take this kind of negative energy you were feeling and put it into this atmospherically dark piece. Yeah. That is doing very well. Yeah. This is the first of uh, your films that overtly deals with queer themes. Yes. Uh, was this in response specifically to some of the things you were going through post-breakup? Or uh, did you just feel like this was the point in your career it was time to deal with the, that subject matter? It was a little bit of both. Um, I, I knew like I knew I wanted to um, do something. I'd always kind of, you know, I'm, uh, I'm very into horror and I'm very into like gay issues or like LGBT issues. So I, I knew like in my kind of, you know, in my heart that I wanted to do something that addressed both those things in the same piece right um and i hadn't so far i hadn't kind of found a way to you know i hadn't found the right idea um and when i was doing when i was thinking about like what i was gonna do like that film that was gonna kind of get me out of that that bad place i was in um i i knew that i had to do it you know inexpensively and i uh, and i had to do it kind of um you know, super low budget, and you know, I, and thankfully, I had you know, I have my entire career so far has been very, like I said, like that kind of do-it-yourself mentality. So I knew I know how to make things for you know for little. Um, but I was thinking about ideas. You know, what can I do with two actors in one location? Um, and of course, because I had just had that big breakup, I was like, you know, what if I just have it be a movie about these two people, two guys dealing with you know their breakup because I was going through so many like I was thinking about all these things in my mind that I ha wanted to do differently or like you know I should have said this or I should have done that and you know is this the right thing to do should I you know try should I make more of an effort to make it work blah 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 you know all of that stuff and I was like you know instead of wallowing in this like in my head let's just put it down on paper and it came together really kind of easily you know from that um, and the other thing is um, Iceland is very, you know, even though we have all these kind of rights in place for, for gay people, um, we do not have a lot of, especially when it comes to movies, we do not have a lot of representation in film. Um, and I th I've always thought that was strange and I've always mm. thought that was kind of annoying um, because the we have a few films and it's always, you know, it's either like we're being played for a joke or we're on the sidelines. And it just felt like, you know, this is you know Icelandic cinema can do so much better than this right um, and I wanted to change that I knew like if I'm gonna make my first movie in, in Iceland I'm definitely gonna you know do, do it with gay characters that you know actually make sense well, one of the things I like to talk to a lot of the creators who come on the show about is the importance of representation. Uh, obviously, that is a matter that is is very 
important to you since, yeah. since you just said that. Do you feel like as a creator in the horror space, because it's still a marginalized group within genre, that it's crucial to include these kind of characters? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, I, for me, like it's all, you know, every movie, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, it's, you know, the story and the character that are the most important things. Right. Um, And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in forcing anything into a story that doesn't need to be there but um but why shouldn't gay characters be in the story you know we we make things all you know all the better you know all the more fun (laughs) and interesting so um yeah and i feel like um there yeah we don't see gay characters much in um in horror movies um and yeah it, it is important to to um kind of broaden broaden that kind of uh broaden the genre a little bit and, and, and add these things into the mix um, and I think there's like there's a big audience for it and I also think like the people that you know I hear a lot you know we don't want to we don't want to like add anything gay to it because we don't need to it's not you know it doesn't add anything to it um, but what does it take away yeah what does it take away that's the right. thing like and I don't think yeah there might be like a couple of people you know here and there that are turned off by that but I think most people don't really mind mind it at all right and you know and i also think you know we in order to like make actual progress and make actual change you have to kind of shove it in people's face you know because if if they become used to it then that's a good thing then it's not a problem anymore right so you release this very earnest and uh powerful piece of art and rift then goes on to play many film festivals, mm-hmm. uh, including Outfest, Fantastic Fest, London BFI, Gothenburg. Uh, this is 24 festivals in all so far? Yeah, so far, yeah. So you've been on a whirlwind tour with this movie. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's really fun. Um, I can't, like, the the only problem is that, like, I can only stay in one place for so long. Like, I feel like I'm, by the time I'm, like you know getting over my jet lag and everything i'm you know i'm on to the next plane to the next city um but it, yeah but it's been wonderful just to um to go to all these places and and you know uh be with an audience talk to people after the screenings and and see you know um that it actually like you know makes an, makes a difference and has an impact on people uh it's been fantastic now have you had any crazy experiences on the road uh, uh <laughs> Yeah, well, I had. Um, I mean, my favorite part, like we were in uh, at the uh, in in München uh, in Germany, uh, and uh, a woman fainted at the screening, which uh, I really loved. Uh, I don't know if we can necessarily take credit, like that the movie was so scary that she fainted. It was very hot in the theater, but I like to believe it was a mix, a combination of the two things. I think we should go with that. I think so. Yeah, I love the idea that uh, people lose it in movies because yeah. I, I think too when you are at a horror movie screening when someone reacts negatively you always remember that moment yeah as opposed to like if you're at a drama like if you're sitting and watching you know whatever spielberg's latest is or whatever and someone like you know falls on the floor you can just that's unfortunate but at a horror movie you're like oh my god yeah 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 and i think that's just a feather in the cap yeah no i totally and like we you know we i mean I don't want to say thankfully, but like, but thankfully she fainted like at at the very end, so uh, people could still finish the movie. Um, but then, you know, I was supposed to do a Q and A, and they had like paramedics come and like carry her away. So it's like, okay, no Q and A for this screening. Um, but then all these people 
after the the show, they they were just waiting outside the theater. Uh, so I did like an impromptu Q and A just outside, um, which was really like you know uh, felt really good for me just because I knew like people you know people were into it, people wanted to talk about it, you know. Um, right, because they weren't a captive audience anymore. They sought you out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which so. speaks to the impact of the film. Yeah, it was great, uh, and the woman was fine, by the way. She. Uh, well, she, she lived. I'm glad to hear that she's out there and doing well. Yep. One thing I want to talk about is across your films, uh, you seem to be very committed to establishing atmosphere. Yes. Uh, and I read in another interview where you discussed your influences. You you ticked off you know certain horror films that you looked to as influential, but you also said that you're inspired by paintings. Could you talk to me about that? Yeah, I feel like I'm. I'm inspired by a lot of different things. Um, I'm, you know, and a lot of the times it's not necessarily like um, like a story or a character, or, or it's like a feeling that I get from something that kind of inspires, you know, whatever it is that I'm writing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to look at, you know, um, especially you know when I'm writing, I mostly, you know, um, I, I watch a lot of movies, you know, but I also listen to a lot of music. Uh, to kind of, you know, I, I make these playlists that I feel like fit the mood for the piece. Uh, and then when it comes to, you know, if I'm actually, you know, going to film it, then then I'll, sell, you know, I'll look at, you know, a lot of different things. And I kind of like, I don't have anything necessarily specific in mind um, to, to go look at. I kind of just go with the flow, whatever. You know, I also feel like, I don't know, this is very kind of new agey, but uh, once like things are set in motion, they, you know inspirations just kind of come to me you know uh, I feel like things happen you know at the right time you know at the right moment at the right time and they kind of become huge parts of whatever it is I'm doing um, so um, in the case of like like say child leader um, there was uh, you know all these Francis Bacon paintings that I ended up looking at I can't like it's been a while now but I can't remember like why that that kind of bled into that film, but that was totally by accident. I think right. I just kind of randomly stumbled onto, you know, um, like a website or something with his paintings. And I was like, oh, you know, this is actually, you know, this is speaking to what I have in mind already. But, you know, combining these two things um, makes a lot of sense. And when you're putting together a piece and you have these playlists and these images that are helping kind of lay that foundation in your mind, do you share that with your cast and crew? Or Because I know that Christopher Nolan, uh, he does screenings of movies that he wants the cast and crew to see before he makes his films to kind of set the tone. Like when they made The Dark Knight, he made everyone watch uh, Heat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you can, when you know that, you can totally, totally see it sense. in the film. Yeah. So I'm wondering, do you, or do you keep that all for you, and let them create their own? Um, in terms of like the visuals, I always like, especially with my DP, you know, I'll, you know, we'll go over that very carefully, and we'll, you know, I'll screen movies for him and send him clips and you know paintings and and stuff. Um, I think in terms of the music, I keep that to myself just because like sometimes it's you know uh, maybe a little bit embarrassing what I am listening to. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> translate like what I th- consider as being moody doesn't necessarily translate into exactly the mood that I'm going for. Um, a lot of Celine Dion. No, well, I mean. <laughs> You know, <laughs> always. Uh, but um, in terms of like for for actors, I try not to. Well, yeah, I'll talk. We'll talk about specific movies. I always try not to kind of get um, 
you know, a performance or um, like I, I try to stay clear of kind of influencing them too much right. or like pointing them into like, you know, be something like this, you know, do something like that. Um, you know, I'd rather see what they have to to bring to the table and then kind of massage it uh, from there. Um, but yeah, no, I do feel like, you know, in terms of just setting the mood, um, there are definitely things that I, I will share. Um, so everybody kind of knows what we're going for. And you intake a lot of art. Now that you're on the festival circuit, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of new things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What have you seen recently, whether it's film uh, or painting or whatever, that is speaking to you right now? Well, I mean, I just saw Mother yesterday. Mother, with an exclamation point. With an exclamation (laughs) point. That spoke to me quite a bit. Um, I mean, I've always been a Darren Aronofsky fan. I actually saw him um, when I think I was probably like 15 or 16. He had um, a screening of Pi. Uh, in Iceland. An underrated classic, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I saw that, like, this was back when he had, like, purple hair and, you know, still kind of, you know, uh, had that, you know, thing going on. Uh, but I just remember, like, seeing that movie and being like, you know, I have no idea what this is, but, you know, it's fascinating. Um, so I've always, you know, I, I, I really enjoy what he's doing. And I just, like, enjoy what he's been doing with his career. Uh, but Mother definitely um, made a very strong impact on me yesterday. Um, and it's a very divisive film. Yeah, it's, it's, but you fall in the favorable side. Yes, very much. Um, it's just like I like when people go for broke. You know, um, I don't necessarily know if you know. It's a yeah, it's a challenging, challenging movie. It's um, it's it's ripe for interpretation, um, and I just like yeah, I like seeing you know, especially established filmmakers kind of take a chance like that. Well, as of the time of this recording, I haven't actually had a chance to see it yet, but I do think there is a trend, maybe Noah outside of the box, but all the other films that Aronofsky has made seem to speak to um, a theme of mental deterioration, Mm -hmm. but in a very human way. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's what really, um, when I saw Requiem for a Dream, the the, the powerful uh, elements of that story for me are... um, the mother and her her slow breakdown. Yeah. And just even from what I know about mother, exclamation point, uh, it seems to be that he still dances with these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing um, that I think he um, is important to him and, and also just in terms of like the movies that I am enjoying, like the low budget movies or the indie movies that I see today, I love it when people, <clears throat> when they kind of retain that, you know, um, like focus on, uh, a character or focus on the story um, because I've you know th- it's so easy to kind of like do um, do a film that's um, you know just um, aesthetics right uh, and I feel like sp- especially these days we you know we're very there's like this fetishization of like a certain period in time you know there's all this nostalgia stuff happening and um, I think a lot of times we we focus too much on just like how things look and right. not how they feel um, because like a thing, you know, a movie can look spectacular and it can be, you know, it can be entertaining up to a point. But if you don't feel anything at the end, you're probably not going to, you know, recommend it or like watch it again. Well, I think that's a mistake a lot of people are making right now is that nostalgia is a powerful marketing tool and it's something that a lot of people gravitate towards. But it's not something you can actually recreate. Yeah. Because it has to be something that you witnessed or participated in or took in at a certain point. And that's what creates the nostalgia. And we're seeing a proliferation of, of 80s culture right now. Much, yeah. I think, in the 80s, we saw a proliferation of 50s culture. Yeah, exactly. 
But the things that hit do something different. Like Greece was successful, not because it was set in the 50s, but because it gave us a little something new. Yeah. And it was like earnest and, you know, it was, you know, it's, yeah. So I think that the fetishization of aesthetics is a really interesting discussion because we're seeing a lot of it with things like Mother and Neon Demon and to an extent It and Stranger Things. Yeah, and, yeah. and some of those things are very successful and some of those things are not. Yeah. But aesthetics are important, as we talked about at the top of this. You referenced Carrie, which is a very aesthetics-heavy film. Yeah. Suspiria, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So as an artist who definitely trades in atmosphere and aesthetics, but also strong story. What is the balance point in your mind? Um, it's, it is tricky. And it's like, it's something that I, th- I feel like I'm, it's, you know, I'm going to be, um, kind of, you know, it's something I have to deal with, with every, every new project that I work on. Um, because like it can be, you know, you, this is when it, when it's always good to have good collaborators on hand and good people that can, you know, reach your things or, or watch your rough cuts because like what, what, um, comes across as, you know, um, like emotional or, or, or heartfelt to me doesn't necessarily translate to everybody else. Um, so it is, you know, I, I feel like you just kind of have to, you can't really make up your mind. You can't like you can't know it yourself until like you put it out there or like give it to somebody else to to see um and then you know from from that feedback you can kind of go go back and enhance or or pull back or whatever and you mentioned next projects and new projects what is next for you um so yeah i have well there's like the the there's two answers to that question. So there's like one thing that I'm working on now that um is also set in Iceland. Um and it's based on this um it's based on a, a best-selling novel from Iceland. It's kind of, you know, this Scandinavian thriller with a spooky element to it. Um and uh, I'm super excited about that. Um but that's not going to start filming until a year from now. So um, in the meantime, there's a few different things that who knows if they will happen or like which one of them will happen. But um, hopefully, you know, hopefully there will be something happening before next year because I don't know what else I'm going to do <laughs> if, if they don't. Well, I'm excited to say that you are the first guest of the month of October here Ooh, on Dead for Filth. Nice. So uh, I'd like to know, what are your Halloween plans, if any? Oh, my God. So this always seems to happen on Halloween. Like, there's something big happening that makes me not be able to kind of participate in the <laughs> the celebration. So last year, we um, had the premiere of Child Eater, the feature in Iceland, like, on Halloween weekend. Which I guess, like, I mean, that was like, you know, premiering a horror film that's, you know, pretty, pretty Halloween-y. Yeah, I think that fits into the the celebratory. Yeah. Um, And this year, actually, um, we also have the Icelandic premiere of Rift. Oh, wow. So it's like happening exactly one year later. Um, So Rift was made in Iceland and has traveled the world, but it hasn't premiered there yet? It hasn't premiered, yeah. almost Almost nobody in Iceland has seen it. Um, We wanted to kind of take it on the road first to build some um, awareness, like a little bit of buzz, um, because like I said like it's a very low budget movie um, you know it was a 10 people crew we shot it in 15 days very small and we didn't we don't really have you know a big marketing we don't want, like we have no marketing mar- marketing budget at all so we needed to kind of figure out a way to um, to make people interested without you know buying a lot of ads right um, and yet from a 10 person crew you made this movie that's traveled the world won awards 
that's got to be a great feeling. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Like, I have to, like, pinch my... I was in Portugal, and we were, like... I was sitting with um, a couple of other directors, and we were like, you know, this is, like, an insane life we're living. You know, we're, like, sitting in Lisbon in Portugal. Like, we just had, like, a sold-out screening of our films. Right. And, you know, what is this life? This is, like, so surreal. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really um, been unbelievable and a gratifying feeling. And uh, since we're discussing Halloween and, yes. and your Halloween premiere in Iceland, uh, are there any rituals or traditions that you like to participate in in the month of October that you do for yourself as a horror fan? Well, I like to, you know, I always try to just watch a lot of horror movies. And I try, you know, for some reason in October, I, I gravitate more towards like the old kind of old school um, film. So this month I would love to like go back to like the the, the Val Luton movies, like watch, you know, like Cat People or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, yeah, you know, going to Halloween parties, you know, if, if possible, dress up. I always feel like I'm super last minute with dressing up. <laughs> uh, my favorite Halloween costume that I ever did was, uh, and the only time I did drag was uh, dressing up as uh, Eddie from Absolutely Fabulous. Oh. So, you know, if, if I get an idea that I feel like, you know, that kind of lights me on fire about doing something on Halloween, I'll, I'll go for it. But, but like I say, I feel like I'm always so busy that... Uh, it, it happens less than I wanted to. I like that you chose Eddie, by the way, because most people seem to gravitate towards Patsy. But I think Eddie is where it's at. Oh, no. yeah. No, Eddie is like, and also like, I I feel like I am Eddie. I'm like, I'm totally more that person than I am Patsy. Um, but also my friend Baldwin, he did Patsy. So, and he's, you know, uh, it made sense for, for the two of us. I love that. Now, even though Eddie Monsoon was the character, if you had a drag name, what would it be? Oh my God! Uh, well, I do have. Uh, it's just one one word, uh, and it's uh, lingerine. And what is that? <laughs> so it's kind of like a mix. So my name is Erlinger. Um, sometimes I'm my nickname is just Linger, um, and you know, then I was like, you know, uh, the word lingerie and linger. They kind of I don't know. Like and then lingerine was born. I don't know. This happened many years ago. I don't. I must have been in like some weird state of mind um but uh, i used to like because i sometimes dj when i'm in iceland and i used to be called dj lingerine um but then nobody could spell it and nobody knew what it meant so <laughs> i kind of dropped it i feel like that fits into the like whole world of djs and edm though having sort of a cryptic name true but i would be the dj that would actually play selling dion you know so edm was not my <laughs> i like that selling has come thing. up twice in this conversation oh, we should like talk about her uh, you know a lot more I just saw a uh, Canadian horror film for children called uh, The Peanut Butter Solution, where she, at 12 years old, sang like three of the songs on the soundtrack, and it was her first English language oh, wow. thing. And it was it's very bizarre. But can you imagine like a Canadian horror movie made today, starring Celine Dion as like a villainess or like some sort of like you know mysterious figure? Uh, I want to make that happen. I want to make that happen right now. Uh, that's my Halloween wish. Yeah. The Celine Dion horror film. Yes. And speaking of Halloween, to wrap that up, you mentioned Val Luton. Yes. And uh, Cat People and your interest in uh, older horror films during the month of October. Uh, we already talked about some of the things you've seen on the festival circuit and the movies you're watching today. What are your Halloween recommendations for listeners to watch? To watch? Yeah. Oh. Um, I would say, like, okay, I, I would... Um, 
I always like um, Daughters of Darkness because we're also talking about queer horror. Right. Um, it's a that's, peak lesbian vampire film. Exactly. And it's very sexy and it's very kind of sensual and, and lush and really beautiful. Um, I, I go back to that movie quite a bit. Um, there's a movie called... Um, I think it's called it's it's got a, a few different titles, but I think one of them is Night Warning and also Butcher Butcher Nightmare Maker. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, 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 with Susan Terrell. That movie's kind of gay. It's very yeah. gay. It's super gay. So um, I haven't seen that in a long time, but I, I think it's out on Blu-ray now. So I'm like, I I, I might try and, and and get my hands on that. Um, and I don't know, like I don't know, it's it's borderline horror, but Dressed to Kill is a big favorite of mine. Uh, you can also, you know, it's uh, if you need a good Halloween costume, dressing up as, up as Bobby from Dressed to Kill is a is a good good one. What I love about Dressed to Kill, it's, it's probably my favorite of that era of De Palma. Yeah, is uh, the surprise of the movie is not really a surprise if you have two human eyes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I won't say it here, but there is a, a a reveal, let's say, about the murderer that if you have the ability to watch the movie, you should see coming from a mile from away. From a mile away, yeah. Um, and yet it's still delicious. It's just so sensational. It's just it such a, you know, it's like dripping. It's it's so sleazy, but like so classy in the same at the same time. And... Uh, and it starts with Angie Dickinson in the shower. In the shower. For what I feel like is 15 minutes. It's yeah. like the longest shower in film history. And she's like moaning and like close up, uh, close ups of her nipples and stuff. And it's like, oh, De Palma. She's uh, got to be the cleanest person in film history. Like, yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, uh, where can people find you? Well, um, I'm on Twitter and on Instagram uh, by my my sometime nickname, Linger, L-I-N-G-U-R. Um mostly just like retweeting stuff about my movie but sometimes uh offering you know uh words of wisdom of my own um <laughs> yeah i think that yeah those two things are, are are where you can find me most of the time and then also like if you go to uh is not com but is because it's a, an icelandic movie is is the uh, icelandic it's the icelandic uh thing for for websites you learn something every day yeah um yeah you can if you go there you can find out all the information about about the movie where it's playing if it's it's coming to a city near you uh so you should check check that out and if it is coming to a city near you i cannot recommend it enough it is awesome and if you also get a chance throughout this season and beyond please check out erlinger's other films child eater uh child eater the short and the banishing are both also on shutter right now Mm -hmm. uh he's a fantastic filmmaker in person and thank you for joining us today thank you so much for having me and this has been dead for filth i'm michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.